Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, an audio series about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they've come to be the way they are today. I'm Richard Moss, and this is episode 28, Transport Tycoon, or the tale of the great optimizer and his two greatest works. We'll get going in just a moment. You may have heard the expression that every overnight sensation is a decade in the making. A decade of hard work, toiling in obscurity, or relative obscurity. Honing a talent, perfecting a craft, optimizing a skill set, and envisioning whatever it is that breaks through. In reality, the actual duration may not be a decade. In fact, I'd say it rarely is. It's five years, or eight years, or 18 years, or however long it takes for the pieces to all fall into place. The talent, timing, and product. But the idea bears repeating. The greatest accolades, the greatest achievements, the greatest games are the product of hard work built atop years of invisible labor. And such it was that Chris Sawyer, like John Romero, Carol Shaw, Gunpei Yokoi, and many others before and since, such it was that in 1994, Chris Sawyer suddenly shifted from a little known, though well respected, figure in the games industry, a programmer who converted Amiga games to the PC, to become an industry icon. 1994 was the year when his first original game was published, the year when big-name PC game publisher Microprose put his transportation-focused business sim Transport Tycoon, an incredible solo development effort, in a box and sold it in stores to widespread acclaim. The game itself had taken Chris just a year to develop, but the journey to making it had begun much earlier. Chris had started programming as a teenager in 1981, largely out of curiosity, through trying to make things appear on the screen on a range of different computers he'd encountered. There was the Commodore PET at his high school, the Sinclair ZX81 demonstration unit in a WH Smith store, and the Texas Instruments TI-99 that one of his neighbours owned, as well as the Commodore VIC-20 that a different neighbour had. And eventually, after diligently saving up his own pocket money, he'd become engrossed in a machine of his own, a computer's links. A now forgotten, obscure even then, 8-bit computer with fancier graphics and more horsepower than the leading systems of its day. The leading systems at the time being the Apple II, the ZX Spectrum, and the Commodore 64 but certainly not this computer's links. And here, in 1983, is where the journey really starts, where Chris sets off towards the lands where he'd make his name. And I find it fascinating how serendipitous this was, looking back on it. For you see Chris's two great successes, Transport Tycoon and Rollercoaster Tycoon, were both made possible by his phenomenal systems knowledge, by his immense capacity to hand-code complex interactions of data at low levels of abstraction. And here is where he began to learn those skills, to internalise them to the point of them becoming natural talents. He later told Arcade Attack in an interview that he'd not had access to an assembler for that Lynx computer, so when he'd wanted to move beyond coding in BASIC, He'd needed to write his own programs, byte by byte, in machine code, 
the lowest level programming language, the numerical instructions that computers themselves use. And with scant resources available to teach him these skills, he'd mostly figured them out on his own, just trying different things until he got his ideas to work, always chasing that next exhilarating breakthrough. Chris continued to dabble in machine code, though somewhat less than before, when he upgraded to a similarly obscure machine called the Memotech MTX500, which actually did come with a built-in assembler, which in turn enabled him to write programs in the abbreviation-heavy Z80 assembly language, programs that, beginning in 1984, he very often had published commercially. Chris had sent Memotech cassette tapes of some games he'd made through copying the designs of popular titles, like Missile Command, which was the 1980 Atari arcade game converted to the capabilities of the MTX500, using a mix of basic and machine code. With the name intentionally misspelled, a K rather than a C, as though that somehow made his unapologetic, blatant clone of another's work okay. But this was a different time. This was the wild west of the computer games business, and Memotech weren't much concerned. Or at least their games guy, Jim Wills, wasn't much concerned. Neither at this point nor a few months later, when he left to start a company called Megastar Games. So Jim liked Chris's work enough to publish it. For meager royalties, but invaluable experience. And so Chris was commercially published with his unlicensed MTX500 versions of Missile Command, Qbert, Manic Miner, and a few others. After high school, he enrolled in a computer science and microprocessor systems degree, where he studied the fundamentals of both software and hardware design in computers, an experience he found invaluable, as it taught him how to push computers further by learning how their hardware worked. And it taught him the theories behind the sorts of nitty-gritty software systems things that he'd already been practicing at home. Optimization, sorting, algorithms, and even more varieties of machine code for different processes. At home, meanwhile, he'd shifted over to the Amstrad CPC, which technologically speaking wasn't hugely different to the Memotech system he'd been on before, but it was a modest upgrade. And unlike his previous computers, it was actually kind of popular. And for Chris, it would be his gateway to the PC. Because in the course of studying at university and making computer games on the side, he wound up getting an Amstrad-made IBM PC clone and learning x86 assembly language. So Chris had, during this period, been getting his games published through Areola Soft, a German company with a UK subsidiary that had promised him a job programming games for them once he graduated. Except some promises can't be kept, especially in an industry that moves as fast as computer games publishing was then. The home computer business was by that point deep into its transition from 8-bit to 16-bit hardware. And that transition came with adjustments to the standard of game graphics and design required, and to the way marketing and sales worked, and the cost of publishing, and so on. And Areola Soft wasn't doing too well at managing the transition. So Chris didn't have a job waiting for him after all. 
and he'd missed out on all the great electronics engineering jobs that his classmates had applied for, because he thought he had a job waiting for him. So, oops to that. But not to worry, he'd made enough connections and enough headway as a programmer that he managed to find a business agent. And then that agent in turn connected him to the booming Amiga to PC games porting industry. He later said he'd thought it a a stopgap measure. Just a bit of fun while he looked for more permanent employment in the electronics industry. But Chris took to his new conversions work like a duck to water. The kid who'd had to get creative and remain patient to make anything work on his computer's Lynx machine now excelled in an environment where he had to contend with the vast gap in multimedia capabilities between the Amiga and the PC. PCs of the day were pathetically inept as games machines compared to a system like the Amiga. Whereas the PC had just a CPU, and maybe in a minority of machines, a dedicated sound card was installed, like something from Soundblast or Adlib. On every Amiga, there was a custom chipset that contained audio and video coprocessors that could take some strain off the CPU while simultaneously offering additional capabilities that PCs lacked, like the ability to dynamically move between several color modes inside a program while you're running it, ranging from two colors all the way up to 4096. Whereas most PC users, by contrast, were locked in at 16 colors or less. And every Amiga user had a mouse, probably a joystick too. And on PC, you couldn't bet on either of these, at least not yet, maybe later. So to get even remotely close to approximating the experience of an Amiga game on a PC... Chris had to squeeze every last drop of power out of its CPU. Kind of like he'd been doing with his games on the MTX500 and on the Amstrad CPC. Except on a grander scale. Because now he was converting code that had been developed on the cutting edge of Amiga games. And in a couple of cases, on the cutting edge of game developments on the even more powerful 32-bit Acorn Archimedes. Which, to to give you some perspective there, if the Amiga made the PC look underpowered, the Archimedes made the PC seem like an antique. I'll give you a couple of examples. The first is Chris's PC conversion of Archimedes' game Zarch, or Virus, as it was renamed for other systems. A polygonal 3D shoot-em-up with colourful virus-laden land presented in a patchwork of undulating coloured rectangles... There's a third-person view of the player's hover plane as it battles against gravity and inertia, as well as some alien foes. There, there, there are trees on the ground, the 3D trees. This is super advanced stuff for the 1980s, particularly with what I think is still entrancing, buttery smooth frame rates and 256 color graphics that together accentuate particle effects, yes, particle effects on the ship's cannon fire and debris and the shadows that cast on the flat-shaded 3D world. I mean, it looks like a game created in Unity now by some talented indie who who likes the the old-school 3D aesthetic. But this was in 1987. 
and German magazine ASM declared Chris's 1988 DOS port comparable to the Archimedes and Amiga versions in every detail, except for the unavoidable fact that it ran slower on the anemic PC standards of the day. Which, without boring you with technical details, I'll state simply is a phenomenal achievement given the power differential between these systems. Then jumping forward a few years to 1993, consider Frontier Elite 2, which like Virus had been originally programmed by David Brabant. That's a name you may recognize. He was the creator of 1984 space trading game Elite, which popularized the idea of open world game design. Elite 2, as you can probably guess, was the long-awaited sequel to Elite. And like its forebear, it was designed and programmed entirely by David Brabant using assembly language. Except now on Amiga instead of the BBC Micro. It had a quarter of a million lines of low-level code specifically crafted to eke out as much power as possible from the Amiga. And with a procedurally generated three-dimensional universe of some 100 billion celestial objects, in which star systems are very often inhabited by advanced races, sometimes spread across multiple planets, each of which has their own 3D topography, and each of which you can land on. And everything is navigable via a simulation of the branch of physics that we call classical mechanics, which concerns things like velocity and momentum and preservation of energy. And Chris had not only converted the whole lot from Amiga native 68,000 assembly code to x86 assembly for DOS systems, without a hitch. But he'd also done it with enhancements, as the PC had by this point finally caught up and started to pull ahead of Amiga in the technological race. Most notably, he'd added texture mapping, which literally means the mapping of a pattern or image onto the surface of a 3D object to make it look more realistic, more textured. He had taken the code of one of the greatest optimizers in the history of computer game development and made it better. The student had become a master, and with that, Chris was ready and eager to set out on his own. I'll continue with the story right after this break. The Life and Times of Video Games takes a lot of work to produce, and I mean a lot. Between archival research, interviews, writing, editing, mixing, mastering, music composition, and everything else, a typical episode will take me anywhere from 20 to 50 hours to create. It depends on the complexity demanded by a particular story. And that makes it kind of hard for me to be consistent with my publishing schedule, because I do this on the side of freelancing, and while the network I'm on is currently setting up for running advertisements in the near to mid-future. Right now, the show's only income stream is crowdfunding. So if you'd like to support me, to help me make more episodes, and maybe even go full-time on it one day, please tell other people about the show, and if you can afford it, you can send me a bit of money by paypal.me slash mossrc or patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. Now let's get back to the show. When we left off, I just talked you through Chris Sawyer's several years spent mastering assembly language 
and code optimization while doing Amiga to PC game conversions. But now, in 1993, as he neared completion on his two final projects, the arcade-style soccer game Goal and space trading sim Frontier Elite 2, he felt an itch to dive into a game that was all his own. He'd already started laying the groundwork, not just in terms of those years spent mastering his craft as a programmer of technologically advanced game conversions, but also with the beginnings of this new solo project. Chris had been building a 3D isometric graphics engine on the side, just for fun. And in assembly language, of course, because he never seemed to take the easy route with his code. And in his downtime, he was playing the... Railway Company Empire building game, Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon. And then one day, in the middle of his huge conversion project on Elite 2, he'd had the idea to combine the two. To put trains in his isometric game world, and then just play around with some ideas. Gradually, that fun programming experiment morphed into something more serious. And Chris started to formalise a concept. It would be a transport simulation not just containing trains, but also other modes of transport, and a whole simulated region of the world. He saw real potential in this, so he got permission to include his working title, Chris Sawyer's transport game, in Elite 2 as an easter egg, displayed in-universe on an advertising board in a random spaceport. His transport game got filled with lots of easter eggs of its own as he went along with help from artist Simon Foster, a friend of a friend from way down south who replaced Chris's placeholder programmer art with detailed pixel work that he'd done in deluxe paint. The Amiga graphics tool that Episode 3's colour cycling master Mark Ferrari had used. Most building graphics were modelled on real buildings, like the Livingston Tower in Strathclyde University in Glasgow, where Chris had been a computer science student several years earlier and the house that he lived in while developing the game, and various other places from around Glasgow that he photographed and and asked Simon to put in. And bit by bit, more of the game came together into a cohesive vision, and bit by bit, Chris expanded its codebase, which he'd written entirely and painstakingly in assembly language. Chris was asked back in 2014 for a 20th anniversary interview why he wrote Transport Tycoon in assembly language, just like his Amiga to PC conversions. He explained that it was partly about just enjoying the challenge of low-level coding, but it was also a matter of necessity. Assembly code allowed him to figure out exactly how many cycles of the processor each instruction would use, and then to optimize it so that the cycle count is as low as possible and that he can then fit more stuff into the game. Or to quote him directly, it was the only way to get a game that was compact enough and ran fast enough. In March of 1994, several months after he'd started working on the game, Chris's agent Jackie Lyons took the roughly 80% complete game and a pitch document they wrote together and began shopping it around to publishers. The transport game, as they called it initially, or Interactive Transport Simulator, as it was soon renamed, would present players with a living 3D game world that's 450 times larger 
than the fully zoomed-in view. It's filled with towns, industries, forests, airports and railways, all extensively simulated to facilitate the buying, expanding, managing and optimizing of a transport and logistics business, or multiple competing businesses. And with towns that grow and shrink on their own, largely in response to the quality of transport services, but also to an extent in response to the policies of the local governments that you could try to influence. Or to put it much more simply and briefly, it would be a game where you compete with virtual opponents to build and manage a developing region's transport infrastructure, balancing the pros and cons of each transport type along the way. The ultimate aim would be to survive 100 years of business, from 1930 to 2030, in a cutthroat competitive market where the computer-controlled competitors made up for any shortcomings they may have in intelligence as they build their weird zigzagging railways. They make up for those with a very aggressive playing style. Chris's agent, Jackie, took the pitch to several publishers, Microprose among them, A few years earlier, when Chris had done the PC port of Elite Plus, they'd been so impressed, they'd told her to let them know if he ever wrote his own game. And true to form, when she did tell them, they jumped at the chance to publish this interactive transport simulator, or Transport Tycoon, as it now became known in a nod to its microprose-published spiritual predecessor, Railroad Tycoon. Transport Tycoon was a captivating game, It was a battle against time and entropy that required craft and good planning and no small amount of that all-importance optimization. If you were to survive the preordained 100 years, Transport Tycoon players had to not only worry about the core business of building and plotting transport routes to move passengers and commodities like coal, oil and wood, but then also government regulations the ever-changing whims of politicians, competitive advertising, credit limits, random events, and more. Somehow all managed in an interface and progression system that you could kind of get your head around, at least on a basic level, in a few hours of patience, clicking and tinkering. And the games press loved it. Electronic entertainment reviewer Tom Basham called it entertaining and extremely addictive while Next Generation called it the best economic sim since civilization, and Edge noted that it'll leave your PC wheezing decades into the game, when aircraft buzz around and trains chug along over vast swathes of the map, and you're pushing up against the limits of allowed vehicles and loading stations. But that busyness and scale and graphical beauty is precisely what makes it so engrossing. Hence their concluding argument that Railroad Tycoon was a mere rehearsal. The Transport Tycoon is so much more. It's totally non-linear, incredibly flexible, superbly detailed, and utterly riveting. Sales were strong too, particularly in the UK and Europe. And so to prolong its lifespan at a time when games were lucky to still be talked about more than six months after release, Chris and Microprose put together a World Editor expansion pack and then a deluxe edition the following year. The former introduced additional scenarios, while the latter shifted the start and end times back 20 years. Plus it added a whole lot of new content, like more vehicles and environments, 
and critically for hardcore fans of the game. It allowed for unidirectional or one-way signals on roads and rail for greater route efficiency. Chris then began to rewrite parts of his isometric system with a mind to do a transport tycoon sequel with multi-level roads and railways and other three-dimensional constructions. But after maybe a year or so of doing that, and banging his head against the wall, trying to transition from DOS to Windows, he had a change of heart. He read a book about roller coasters called White Knuckle Ride, and he was particularly struck by a pair of photos displayed on facing pages. One showed an intricate wooden roller coaster. The other, a twisting, looping steel coaster. And Chris wondered if he could get them both built in his isometric game. Well, he could, but it was weird without people there to ride them. So he spent some more time adding people in. And this roller coaster experiment seemed much more exciting than a Transport Tycoon sequel. So as a result, he started to lose interest in the old plan. But there was one little snag. He'd already signed a publishing deal for Transport Tycoon 2. So rather than force himself to finish his current project, he bought his way out of it and got the contract torn up so he could pivot to a roller coaster simulation game. Again, he worked alone, except for his artist, Simon Foster, and a composer and a couple of programmers who just hooked up his engine to Microsoft's DirectX graphics system so that he didn't have to. But all the other programming was his own. And I want to stress here that a core team of three, particularly one in which a single person is doing all the design and programming, it really is amazing. Because by this point, we're talking the late 1990s. Most commercial computer games were made by teams of 15 to 20 people. And just as Transport Tycoon had benefited both in design and technology from his years of practice optimizing his code to run as efficiently as possible, this new game, Roller Coaster Tycoon, would benefit from his years programming PC conversions of David Braben's 3D shooter maps and space games. Because much of Roller Coaster Tycoon's ultimate success would rest on its physics of motion. The way rides would respond to changes in mass, friction, velocity, and so on. Through the various twists and turns and dips and climbs and death-defying or death-triggering leaps through the air. It was a much more focused game than Transport Tycoon. You still built a business empire, but the scale was now shrunken down to the size of one big theme park or a series of big theme parks built in isolation from one scenario to the next, that you can fill with custom-designed rides. And this was a very good thing. Rollercoaster Tycoon fared much the same as Transport Tycoon among reviewers. Again, it scored well. Again, critics praised the enormous depth of detail and addictive player creation elements. And again, they praised the clean, attractive graphics and they only made minor complaints against the time and energy it took to master the interface. But where Transport Tycoon had done well commercially, Roller Coaster Tycoon went gangbusters. Its creative tools hit a nerve with the game-buying public all over the world. And this made all the difference. Here was a game that swapped out the nerdiness of planes and trains and cargo routes for the excitement and terror of theme parks. A game that you didn't have to play as an exercise in optimization. 
Though unless you use cheats, you probably wouldn't last on without doing so. But all the same, you could play it just to make roller coasters. And slowly word spread through the PC gamer crowd and out into the mainstream. There's a game that lets you build your own roller coasters and log forms and other theme park rides and test them out on little virtual people. And you can do all the other theme park management stuff too, but you can build your own roller coasters. And apparently that's a pretty big deal, because Roller Coaster Tycoon wound up being the best-selling PC game of 1999. Then the second best-selling PC game of 2000. And the second best-selling PC game of 2001. The Sims beat it both those years. All told, it sold millions, and it earned tens of millions in profits. Though Chris later had to sue publisher Atari to get his full contracted share of the royalties. And it was a testament not only to the power of a great vision, well executed, but also to the value of Chris's rare talents with assembly language. He'd optimised his way to glory. Again. The cracks were starting to appear, what with his troubles learning DirectX and the various algorithmic shortcomings he'd been forced to concede, like the way ride-goers who fall in the water would drown no matter what. Or park patrons would sometimes get stranded behind a bush or a bin or something, unable to find their destination, even when they're standing right next to it. But the pieces had fallen into place. The bugs were all forgivable, and the quirks in the AI added to its charm. A charm that sees people still building monster coasters that'll kill their riders long before they reach the end. And that sent many a player tumbling down the rabbit hole, searching for the most inventive ways to torture and maim their patrons. Which is a kind of funny parallel, I think, with that other most popular PC game of the era, The Sims, where popular activities include drowning Sims in their swimming pools, taking away their toilets and trapping them in rooms with no doors or furniture, and then chuckling a twisted chuckle at the comical results. Expansions soon followed, though not as many in number as The Sims, and then a sequel in 2002, in which Chris added a lot of extra ride types, increased the size of the parks, and expanded and improved upon the ride creation tools to the point where you could now just build roller coasters and skip the whole park management thing entirely if you didn't want to do it. But Roller Coaster Tycoon 2 was no great leap forward, just a modest improvement. With increasingly dated graphics and what by now had been widely deemed a shoddy interface. And it was an improvement that perhaps showed how hard it had become for a solo developer to keep up with the unceasing march of technology. Chris would try once more to make a game on his own, but for the artwork and audio. In a Transport Tycoon spiritual successor called Chris Sawyer's Locomotion, released in 2004. But its sales were weak, and its critical consensus poor. A modest improvement in a package that's considering the passage of time, a full decade in all. Critics and players believed should have been a significant one. A game with one foot in the present and the other in the past. An incremental improvement, an evolution, an optimization, if you will. When the expectation, fair or not, was a revolution. And with that, Chris Sawyer faded out of the games industry. A brilliant designer and programmer of a former era. 
now cast adrift, but for a brief return for a 20th anniversary mobile edition of Transport Tycoon. A once celebrated solo developer, neither motivated nor perhaps capable of a return to the limelight. A genius spent on two great games, each refined and optimised in a repeat effort, but maligned for not being enough. Because somehow it's not enough to write an entire game in assembly language for optimal performance, then write it again in half the time, almost from scratch, in order to optimise the design as well. Even as the standards shift beneath our feet, a developer from a world that just doesn't exist anymore has almost nobody anywhere still makes games in assembly language. Chris doesn't do spoken interviews anymore. He hasn't done so since he left the industry more than a decade ago. He'll answer questions over email via an intermediary, but he is, I quote, a very private person. And he prefers to let his games do the talking. And I wonder, what do those games tell us now, as we look back on them today? Do they speak of greatness? Or of wasted potential? Do they scream for improvement to reach our modern standards? As the community-led project OpenTTD has tried to achieve over the past 15 years, through fans re-implementing and expanding on Transport Tycoon Deluxe. Do we hear his games when they speak of their quirks, born of a singular vision and an admirable dedication to a technical art form now near extinct, that of a programmer who writes direct to the machine, bending it to his will in ways unimaginable to a unity or unreal or game-maker-powered solo creator today? Do we listen? Or are we still looking for the next big leap, the next paradigm shift, and forgetting to appreciate the optimizers who strive, or strove, to perfect the imperfectible? The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss, with support from my wonderful patrons, and a special thanks to producer-level supporters Kerry Clanton, Rob Eberhardt, Simon Moss, Vivek Mohan, Wade Trugaskis, and Seth Robinson. You can join these six and some 20 others to help make this show sustainable, to gain access to bonus content and research notes, to get rid of the cross-promos and intermission, and to shape the future of the show by heading to patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. Every episode this season was picked from a larger list of ideas by my patrons. While the money I earn from the show has allowed me to buy several new bits of gear this past year for better production quality, and now, with my latest acquisition, a new MIDI keyboard, better music. So your voice and contributions will really make a difference. And going forward, they're really going to help me spend more time on this show. So that's patreon.com slash games. If you don't want to make a monthly commitment, or you can't make a monthly commitment, you can send me one-off donations via paypal.me slash mossrc. I'll have links to these and to a few other things mentioned in this episode in the show notes, which you can always find at my website, lifeandtimes.games. Until next time, 
please remember to wear a mask, do your social distancing in this time of a global pandemic. It's a scary world out there right now, so be sure to take care of yourselves and each other. My name is Richard Moss, and this was the Life and Times Video Games. Thanks for listening. I'll see you.